By a show of hands, how many people have ever watched or are still watching soap operas? Come on, let's be honest. You're not, you're not really sure if you should. Should I be watching that? You know, General Hospital's been going on for like 62 years, and it's interesting. They never age. I don't know, Botox, there's something going on there. And so you got all the, you got these soap operas, and then today's more modern version of soap operas are like when reality TV came on the scene, right? I saw an advertisement for something called Passion Island. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, nothing could possibly go wrong there, but they're looking for ratings, right? I don't know. You, you know what? You work out your own salvation with the Lord. But when it comes to like the bachelor and the bachelorette, whoever thought it was a good idea to have one dude and 25 ladies? Like I just, farmer needs a wife. Did you watch that one? I know you did. There was one out there that was called Farmers Wants a Wife. And all the drama. Oh my word, the drama. I thought he was the one. <laughs> Why? Because he has a million dollars? So <laughs> that'll do it, right? That'll do it. So today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14. It's a soap opera is what it is. It's a soap opera reality TV show. And I was not expecting to talk about the first 14 verses of Matthew 14. I expected to just kind of brush over it because I didn't care. I frankly just, I I wanted to get to when Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. and 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 then he walks on water. That's the cool stuff. And as I'm studying through Matthew chapter 14, I'm going, man, there's something here. You ever read through the Bible and you're like, wow, this really is important. And so I'm reading through it and I go, there's something to be taught here. Now, through Matthew chapter 14, the first 14 verses, typically when I teach, I go through the passage and I'm explaining it and, you know, doing the best that I can to as the Lord leads me to interpret, it's, you know, exegetical, pre- expository preaching is what I do typically. And, and so this is more, more than that, it's, it, or different than that. It's going to be more devotional application. We're going to read through the story, and I'm going to explain some of the characters that are here. And you're going to see it, man. They're, this is a soap opera at its finest. Some of the goofiest, weirdest stuff that you will ever hear. And I'm telling you what, there's, there's so much fascination when you read through bi- the Bible. These first 14 verses are jam-packed with intrigue, seduction, manipulation, and murder. <laughs> it's, a, it's a juicy soap. It's a juicy... And so, I'm just saying, you're, gonna, you're, you're really going to find this fascinating. Now, you're going to read this, and you're probably going to read more looking for more like this, and you'll find it. So I'm just going to read through the passage uh, in its entirety, and then we're going to, I'm going to go back through it together, and we'll talk through it. So uh, Matthew chapter 14, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, as I typically do, the first 14 verses here. <clears throat> when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That is why he can do such miracles. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John as a favor to his wife Herodias, the former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. 
But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias's daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promised with a vow to give her anything that she wanted. At her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. Then the king regretted what he had said. But because of the vow that he had made in front of his guests, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl, who took it to her mother. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard this news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Heavenly Father, this is a very unique passage uh, for us to be able to even remotely glean anything from. I pray that you would open our eyes to your word, believing that this truly is your inspired uh, document. This is your breath. And so as we learn through this this morning, please help us to hear all that you would have us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two things that I want us to consider today, and both of them regard an itty-bitty, teeny-weeny little word, three letters, you've heard it, sin. We're going to talk about sin, we're going to talk about how my sin can actually affect me and others, and others' sin can affect me and yet still others. I want you to know there's always someone ruling your life. It's either going to be you or it's going to be God. Someone is always ruling in your life. Sin occurs when you choose to, to uh, allow anything else to rule your life. Sin occurs when you rule rather than when God fully rules. And as we go through Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to explain some of the history there. We're going to learn about uh, the Herod family, and we're going to see how all this came together. Because, because in order for you to understand the intensity, there's certain details that we need to know. So let's look at this again. Um, Matthew chapter 14. Verse 1, when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, this must be John the Baptist or the baptizer raised from the dead. That is why that he can do such miracles. At the beginning of our study in Matthew, a couple weeks ago, January, uh, we started reading through Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we, we learned about any Christmas you hear about Herod. We usually hear about Herod the Great. When you do any sort of study within the New Testament and you hear Herod, you need to ask yourself a question. Which one? Which Herod am I actually looking at? Which one am I, you know, uh, learning from here? Or not learning from, but learning about. And so when Jesus was born, Herod the Great ruled. He eventually died and he had three sons to which they took over four different parts of the country. One of the sons... Archelaus took two parts. Then uh, Herod Philip took a part. And here, where we're talking about Herod Antipas, he took a part. He was the ruler of Galilee. Herod, the Herod family were just evil people. Do you know anybody in your life that you would say, they're just evil people? 
You would be, you know what? Let's just be honest. Here in, in our in our culture and country, we wouldn't go that far. We wouldn't look at it as actually evil. We would say it's just different. And in some cases, it is different. And in other cases, it is evil. And so the Herods were just evil people. They've been known to do just tremendously awful things. Uh, Herod was actually, it, it, it's been known and documented that uh, whether his wife offended him or rose up against him or something, he had other wives, so he killed one of his wives because she was some sort of a threat to him. It's been known that Herod would actually had actually killed two of his sons because of any uprising they could occur that, that it could occur from them. There was actually a statement, a, 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 a little uh, phrase that went around in the Jewish community. It is safer and better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Because he wasn't looking out to just take out pigs. But if you're a real threat to his dynasty, well then they're, gonna, they're just going to remove them. They were cold-blooded individuals. The Herods were already cold-blooded. And then Herod Antipas marries a woman that in her history is straight up cold-blooded. So we get a picture that these aren't nice people, right? There's no room right here for you to understand, think, to, to think that these are nice people. What we're going to see right now is called a literary flashback. We have a moment where, we have a moment where, King, where Herod uh, Antipas says, that must be John raised from the dead. And then it goes into this flashback in verse 3. For Herod, so that moment right there, even the word for, you, it's, it's where you would see on, on movies or uh, TV shows where you know it flashes back and it says, three weeks earlier. You ever, seen, you ever seen that? We don't know exactly the time, but there was a period of time at some point earlier that now this they're setting up the stage to help you understand that first two verses wait a second what happened to john and then they go back to recount it matthew lays it out here verse three for herod had arrested and imprisoned john as a favor to his wife herodias the former wife of his of his brother philip and uh, let the journey of drama begin Within the law, they were, you were allowed to marry your brother's wife if the brother passed away, especially if the woman did not have any children. And you would honor your brother by having children with this woman, your new wife, in order to carry on that legacy. His brother didn't die. Uh, Antipas would go and visit Philip, and during the time there, he saw Herodias. Why, hello, Herodias. And started to persuade her away from his brother. And then he had to divorce one of his wives and took her in, and eventually now this beautiful union is together. That's why it keeps saying in here that it was Philip's former wife, making it very clear that they were together first, and then she split and left him and is now with Antipas. See the soap opera? Let us continue. 
Verse 4, John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of a riot because of all the people that believed John was a prophet. Now, Matthew gives a very small snippet in these two verses of, or actually, yeah, verse 4 and 5, of how Herod viewed John the baptizer. But Mark, one of the synoptic gospels, gives a little bit more detail of that same scene. But he gives it from, instead of Herod's view, a little bit more of Herodias' view. So I'm going to read a little bit from Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 17. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother's wife. There it is again. But Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. So John, so Herod wants to kill John. Herodias wants to kill John. I mean, he's basically putting this on his target on himself, right? Whenever you speak truth, by default, there's a target. And John lays this out very clearly. John wasn't one, John the baptizer, he wasn't one to like pull punches. He wasn't one to be kind of like, well, it's probably not a good idea, but you do you, right? He lays it out there. It is against the law of God for you to take your brother's wife. But without Herod's approval, Herodias was powerless. She couldn't just kill him. Thank goodness. For Herod reject, uh, respected John. Interesting, huh? Antipas respected John. You know those people in your life that when you talk to them, they kind of disturb you a little bit, but they're speaking truth, and you have just respect for them. You probably have less people in your life than you think, because anybody that speaks truth to us that sounds like it's speaking against our behavior, we typically marginalize them, get them over there. Well, because I don't really need to hear that negativity in my life. Well, John was one that just let it out, spoke the truth. And Herod, for him to respect, and Mark continues, and protect John, was crazy to think of. Because if you disagree with Herod, Herod can just have you killed. But John had earned his respect. God had allowed that to occur. So Herod Antipas, this evil, evil tyrant of a man respected and protected John the Baptist. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked to John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. So we have this all set up here to understand. So, so Herod likes John, likes to listen to John, but here's Herodias, is his wife, that shouldn't be his wife, but it is his wife, is now starting to make plans. You know she is because of the later verses. Making plans that I'm, I'm going to kill this dude because he's calling me out on my stuff, and who is he, right? And, and so he, she's making a plan. And interestingly enough, it happens at a birthday party. And at Herod Antipas's birthday, or any of the Herod's birthday party, I'm confident there was plenty of wine to go around. A birthday party and drinking never goes well, people. And they're just going into the night, going into the evening. But at a par birthday party, because uh, Herodias couldn't just kill John without Herod Antipas's approval. So she begins the manipulative behavior. 
At a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, performed a dance that greatly pleased him. You need to understand the intensity of a type of dance as this was. This was no tap dance. This was not a cheerleading display. Let's put it this way. There are, there are places around Akron that you could go today and see this performed. Are you with me in our mixed company? The stepdaughter, right? Hey, can, come here, sweetheart. Wait, I want you to do me a favor. See dad over there? I want you to go dance for him. And here's what you're going to ask for. So the story goes, he was so pleased with her dance. Clarification, it wasn't a, well done, sweetheart. This wasn't a school play. He was hyper aware of possibilities and her movements. He was aroused. What do you expect, right? He's been drinking. He's at a birthday party. He's Herod. And he's having a good old time. And he says the words that he later regrets. So since he was pleased, he promised with a vow to give her anything she wanted. Right? That's where it's at. Whatever you want. Even up to half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. You just take it and it's all yours. Perfect opportunity. Mom, what should I ask for? I don't know. Ah, John's head. Like weird, right? Anything you could have. And mom manipulates even daughter to get what mom wants. At her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. See, this is where soap opera meets horror film, right? There's all kinds of drama wrapped up in this story. Then the king regretted what he had said. You ever been there? Have you ever regretted something? But because of the vow that he had made in front of his guests, there's that pressure. He issued the necessary orders. The guy that he was protecting, the guy that he respected, the guy that he enjoyed listening to, the guy that he knew that if he died, there could potentially be a riot because so many people believed him to be a prophet. The one that, I wouldn't say friends, but there was a level of, okay, I'll put up with you. When, when a Herod respects an individual, that's a big deal. But because you wanted that wife... Now she's all up in your space, and now she's in your head. And you end up doing things you would have never otherwise gone through with. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, everything takes over. And he makes the order. Then the king regretted. And made the order. He issued uh, the necessary orders. Verse 10. So John was beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl. Who took it to her mother. Picture if you could. My lady. Great. Like how do you respond to that? And then you go to mom. Here. 
And this is, this is a literal image. This is what they would have done. His literal head on a tray. This is pure evil. And the story continues. Later, John's disciples came for his body and buried it. Interesting within their culture that they went and took care of that first. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. Right? This is Jesus' cousin, so to speak. And so, wouldn't you want to go to him sooner? As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And this is, this is a good thing. No, anytime Jesus wanted to get alone, I assure you, he wasn't just going to look at the scenery or just to stare at the sky. He was most likely going to be alone with his heavenly father. You can see account after account after account where he did that. It doesn't specifically say that in Matthew's account, but you can rest assured if he's going to go be alone, he's going to go sit with his heavenly father. There is going to be stuff that you are going to hear, experience, and have to deal with, and we take the wrong response. We actually respond where we back away from God. How could you if you loved me? That would have been a great time to interject that right there. God, why wouldn't you have sent me sooner? Why wouldn't I, right? So in Jesus' humanity, he's 100% God, 100% man. But he still grieved. He still cried. We know that from Lazarus when he went and he just, he just wept. So he's, he's, there's a moment that he's trying to process what's going on and he's doing it with his heavenly father. I got to believe that because it's consistent within scripture that when he would go alone, he would spend time with his father. So likewise for us, when you get some stuff, bad news, situations, when you're going through it, even if somebody within here says something ignorant, rest assured, that's not God being sinful. That's a person with a sin nature being sinful. Why in the world God would allow us to represent him? is beyond me. But we are image bearers. Every human ever created is an image bearer. Those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior is a child of God. And sometimes his children can hurt each other. Can they not? And we need to not pull back from God. We need to draw near to God, draw so close to him. You remember when you were a little kid? And something happened, a loud noise, or, I mean, even the fireworks that go on, or that were just around here recently, down at the festival. Sometimes you can hear those big booms, and little kids will be shocked by it. And what do they do? They run to a parent or someone close to them, without even thinking about it. Ah! Right? And they run. They run to mom, run to dad. We try to process it with, well, I don't know, should I talk to God? Should I not talk to God? We get all up in our own heads. We're too smart for ourselves, apparently. And we should run to the Lord. Sit in his presence. So Jesus goes to be by himself, but the crowds follow him. And Jesus had great compassion on these crowds. So instead of just being alone at that time, it appeared that the crowds just wouldn't let him go. And he continued to heal the sick. Sometimes you want to be alone, and you should take time to be alone. And sometimes you want to be alone, and God says, no, not yet. We need to do a little bit more. You don't get you to just check out anytime you feel like you have to check out. 
Sometimes you just have to push through. Sometimes you just got to go one more step or one more mile or one more moment. You just can't abandon ship altogether. Jesus had compassion and he healed the sick. So what can we even take from this moment of a soap opera? What can we even take from any of this? Two things that stands out to me is what I've already shared with you. Your sin can hurt you and others, and others' sin can hurt you and others. Let's talk specifically about us. Your sin can hurt you and others. There's three ways that I see specifically in which this can happen. Sin blinds you, then it finds you, and then it just grinds you down. When people get caught up in sin, they think everyone is against them. Ah, no one understands, they say. Everyone's judging me. You don't get it. I'm different. No, you're not different. We are all the same vulnerable, born with the same sin nature. We all have the capacity, every one of us in this room, every one of us that even hears my voice, has the capacity to sin. We have to know that about ourselves, because if we are powerless to save ourselves, then we can acknowledge that we need something else, someone else to rescue us from that sin. Sin is nothing to mess around with. Herod thought he was getting a good deal. Hey, you know what? I like my brother's wife. I will take my brother's wife. And before you know it, he's wrapped up in a huge, huge mess. Sin is not cute. It is not precious. It is not acceptable. And it's nothing to be overlooked. You can love people, but you love them by speaking the truth to them. Don't love them into their sin. What good does that do? If you're both walking into a burning building, wouldn't, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to offend them. It's on fire, people. Turn around. Help them turn around. Guide them. Encourage them. At least you get away from it. Be an example. Show them how to do it. Sin is so detrimental and so opposite of God. The Bible presents God's attitude towards sin with strong feelings of hostility, disgust, and even the phrase, utter dislike. For example, sin is described as this putrefying sores, a heavy burden, defiling filth, a binding debt, darkness, a scarlet stain. Sin is not a joke. Because it will manipulate you. It will blind you. You end up doing irrational things. Men walk away from their wives and children who love them to go and do ridiculously stupid flings. Women abandon their families to go find themselves. I will help you. There you are. There are times in which people need to just kind of think through where are they at, how do they fit into the role. But you do not get to just abandon all responsibility and everybody that relies on you. It seems appealing at first, doesn't it? But then suddenly you realize that you're trapped. The grass is not actually greener on the other side. It is a lie fueled by your own sinful lust. Don't blame the devil on these things. 
Well, the devil made me do it. You made you do it. A mirage that entices us and then abandons us. Sin will blind you. This is why we need the church in our lives. This is why we need healthy believers in our lives. Because while you're blind, stepping into a relationship or a situation or a deal financially, you have other people that are not blinded by it, and they can say, do you see where this is going? What? Seems harmless to me. Well, it's not. Let me explain to you why I see it. And you have to have people around you that you trust. Because you might see it so clearly, that mirage, that beautiful thing in front of you, and you just want it so badly, and nothing's going to tell you otherwise. Imagine being engaged. And someone that you highly respect, and very much so value as a man or woman of God, comes to you with concerns. To end that relationship would be excruciating, would it not? Perhaps, maybe, just maybe, you're blinded by something that somebody else actually sees. It will blind you, and that's when sin finds you. And be sure that your sin will absolutely find you out. You may be getting away with something that you think you are right now, but it will catch up with you sooner or later. There is no escape from the consequences of sin. Some would rather die. Check this out. Some would rather die leaving the secret like just hidden here so man doesn't find out and just deal with it on the other side. You have no concept of a holy, righteous God and no fear of God if you're more worried about what people think of you here than once you get there standing before God. When you have a healthy fear of God, you won't worry about that as much here and you'll just try to deal with it here because you know one day you will stand before that holy God. And make no mistake, every single one of us, every one of us at some point will stand before this holy, righteous God. And if that does nothing for you or to you, you don't know God the way you think you know God. Even the demons believe, yet they shudder. To have a healthy fear of a righteous God, start there. So it blinds you, finds you. The Bible speaks about the passing pleasures of sin. It's passing for a season, for a time, and then it literally grinds you down. The repercussions are like a ton of bricks that come crashing down. On broken families, betrayed trust, a damaged witness and reputation, devastated children who had nothing to do with it. No decisions were made by the kids, but sin and selfishness creeped in. And it will grind you down. It is nothing to mess with. So my sin can hurt me and others. And there's other sin that can hurt me and others. The Bible gives us two above all statements that on the surface seem somewhat contradictory, but in reality, they are the end caps to a big truth. Listen to this. Above all, above all else... Guard your heart because it flows the issues, from it flows the issues of life. 
And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Seasoned wisdom knows how to love everyone while not allowing another person's sin to dominate their life. You can love big and guard your heart at the same time. Here's how you know. Thinking of that person that had hurt you, and you start having that twist in your gut like, oh man, you're not there yet. To be able to fully love the person and guard your heart means that you can even talk about the individual, but you know it's probably best to have a little distance. It's not just out of sight, out of mind. When someone else's sin affects us, love big. But guard your heart. Also talk to them about it. If it's a safe situation where you physically are safe to be able to do this, talk to them about the situation. I've had multiple conversations with people that said, hey, when this happened, this is how it made me feel, and I just wanted you to know that. And then we talk through it. If there are mature individuals on both sides, then you can come to an understanding that there's apologies on both sides, there's forgiveness on both sides. Talk about it. Especially within your church family, two believers coming together with the same spirit, being able to work those things out. Be humble. This is important. Be humble. Say that with me. Be humble. We don't do a very good job of this because usually we're mad. Therefore, it elevates us, pride, and we feel bigger than them. Therefore, I'm confident. And then we try to talk. Be humble and remember your own mistakes before you take too deeply to heart the mistakes of others. Every so often when I think about someone or something that, is a, that has occurred or occurring, whatever, and the Lord will remind me, remember when I was kind to you, Gordon, in the similar situation? Yeah. Right? It's that moment of, but I just want to be mad. Right? You ever feel that way? I just want to be angry. I just want to sit in this for a moment. I don't know why we want to do that. <laughs> for whatever reason, we think we feel better. Be reminded, not to shame, but to reveal we're all capable of it. That's why forgiveness needs to happen over the top. And remember that the Lord delights in compassion and that he is all about calling people home to his grace. He's all about it. Nobody is unredeemable. Everybody is invited into the family. You just got to choose to do that. You might have been praying for someone for a very, very long time. Somebody has even hurt you. Maybe even somebody that calls themselves a believer. Pray for them. Trusting that God can, in fact, do something in their life. And finally, your sin or someone else's sin does not define, it reveals. If somebody has hurt you, robbed you of your purity, let's say, physically assaulted, mentally abused, that does not mean that's who you are. It does not define you, it reveals them. It does not define you as a victim. Stop that. Stop listening to the lies that you're a victim. Or else you'll always live like a victim. You are free in Christ if you know the Son of God. You are not a victim. You are not defined by their sin. 
It simply reveals their heart. When people attack you, it tells you more about them than about you. People say things, we say it to my kids all the time. Well, what did they say? Okay, is it true? No. What does it matter? Right? Don't try to, don't try to own, the, like, oh, is that my label now? No. That's just revealing them. They're probably jealous of you. Your sin can hurt you and others. Others' sin can hurt you and others. And even still, Matthew 11 is true. Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus assures you to run to him. Don't run away from him. I've had people say things when they would be here for a visit or at any time in ministry when I would see them at a church where I was serving. And they said, I don't know what it is. I just, I just feel different when I'm here. Something more peaceful. Maybe just maybe a taste of what you could have all the time. It doesn't mean your life's perfect. It doesn't mean you don't have turmoil, but the peace of God that transcends all understanding truly, truly is laid out here for you to receive. So the big idea is, as I said before, there's always hope for those who trust Jesus. Even in the midst of this disastrous family, there is always hope for those who trust Jesus. Now, I talked about Herod Antipas and Herodias. Now, I know that when John died, they pro- I would imagine, our problems are solved. Our problems are solved. At some point in time later, Herodias says another thing. Hey, why don't you go and buy the title king? Come on, let's go do that. It's yours to take. And on their way to do it, as, future, as the history progresses, the emperor found out and arrested them and banished them to, the, to Gaul, where they stayed there with no power, no influence, no privilege, until the day they died. You say, wow, they got what they deserved. Maybe. John's still gone. The disciples that were John's disciples still lost their teacher. Jesus still lost his cousin. The one that paved the way. And yet, Jesus shows compassion. On those around him. Don't live in the sin of others. And don't live in your own sin. Let's move beyond it finally. Because there's always hope. For those who trust Jesus. So what do I do with this? How can you have next steps after this? What do you need to trust Jesus with today? What do you need to give to him? And just let him handle it. 
Spend some time this week in prayer, working through that, the whole week. I want you to be thinking about, Lord, what do I need to trust you with more? And then lay that down. It very well could be someone else's sin in your life, or maybe something you are struggling with in your life, and you need to trust Jesus with that. Next week, we're going to come back here. I want you to read Matthew chapter 14. We're going to finish up uh, Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we're going to move into a brief moment of a CLC family talk, and I'll explain all that in a moment. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're teaching us here. I got to believe that trusting you means somebody here needs to give you their life. They need to trust you as Savior. They need to believe that you truly are God. I pray that they will do that even now, that they will choose to believe you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior in their life, and then allow you to transform them from the inside out. God, thank you for your word. As sometimes ridiculous as some of these passages sound, to think that this could be real, we believe it's your breath, your literal breath speaking. And we know that it is all profitable. So we trust you every step of the way. Guide our thoughts in these next few minutes in Jesus' name.